you've been here for a while, uh, we follow a certain measure of a script on Sundays, what we want to do in the way that we're going to sing songs, the way that we're going to pray, the way we're going to do offering. Um, but we also want to leave room for the Spirit to speak to our hearts. If you're new to the church, there's a booklet in your seat back called Naturally Supernatural, and it talks about the use of spiritual gifts in the service today, that the Spirit is still active among our church. Uh, Shelly and I, in our time overseas, we would repeatedly see that over and over. And so we want to seek that because we know that the Spirit can do in a moment what we as and our human nature could never hope to do in a lifetime. Uh, so we want the Spirit to have His way in our lives. So this is the last message in our summer series, and it's titled, The Church Called to Conflict, and it comes from the 10th chapter in my book on the church, The Resistance. But I would say, I wrote this a couple years ago, if I were to write the book today, I would probably call the 10th chapter called to engagement, because that's really what I mean that as the church, we are called to engage our culture. And so that's really what the message is going to be about this morning. And before coming to Connection Point, Shelly and I were uh, leading a school in a troubled East Jerusalem neighborhood. And one morning as I was there visiting with my dean of students, Jeff, a, our, our business administrator, George, he came running down the hall, and he was out of breath and asking our you know, is, is Abu Ibrahim here? And, and I said, no, he's, he's not here. And he said, oh, okay. But I could tell something was off. And so then shortly thereafter, Abu Ibrahim, he came down the hall, escorted by our, our 6'6", 350-pound guard, Abdullah. Uh, if you want to have a guard, that's a good guy to have. So this parent was being escorted down the hallway. You see, his son we had expelled from the school just a couple of weeks prior because of his misbehavior, his fighting, his cursing, lots of problems. And we had had kind of a documented case of, we just don't think he fits in our school culture. So this dad was coming to argue with me a little bit about that. So I had that conversation. He seemed to have calmed down a bit, and he went on his way. The next morning, as I was helping George set up a businessman's breakfast, I, George said, you know what, God's looking out for you. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, yesterday, Abu Ibrahim, he first came to my office, was yelling and screaming, said, he's going to your office to punch you. And, uh, but wouldn't you know that Abu Ibrahim, while George was trying to scramble and get things so he could come up and, and I guess, forewarn me, I don't know what he was going to do. Uh, he, he basically, what happened is Abu Ibrahim went into the elevator, and when he got in the elevator, the electricity only to the elevator it cut. So George was able to make it up the stairs, and we were waiting for him to arrive, and by the time the elevator kicked back on and brought him to the third floor where my office was, the guard had a chance to walk him down. And my dean of students was a pretty, pretty stout guy as well, so by the time he got to my office with four large guys in the office, I think he decided against hitting me that day. You know, but my challenge, even with that dad, and I'll tell you that my relationship with that dad... Um, he, was a, he had a rental car business, um, and it was amazing how God restored that relationship. But if I would have viewed him as an enemy, that never would have happened. But I have to ask you, is our fight against people? Absolutely not. Scripture tells us we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. We are not at war with those wanting to harm us, but with evil spirits and the evil one motivating people to make poor decisions. Our fight is not against people, government structures, or varying beliefs. Our battle is against the works of the devil. Do you agree with me? This morning we're going to finish our series on the resistance, the church and its mission. And our goal in this series is to take the church back to Jesus. I talked about how the company, the toy company Lego, they came up with a strategy of going back to the brick, and that changed everything for the company. I believe the same thing for the church. We need to go back to the brick, namely the cornerstone Jesus. And if we do that, we know we can move forward and on with God. And so the way to take the church back to Jesus is you examine the scriptures where Jesus talks about the church. And so that's what we're going to do, and we're going to finish that this morning. So we've been traveling through modern-day Turkey, mostly, to discover the qualities Jesus expects of his church. So, I am a teacher-preacher, teacher-preacher. I want you to learn things, but of course I'm going to declare God's words. But the rule of thumb in teaching is, you have not taught 
unless the student has learned. So I'm going to put my own reputation on the line here this morning, and I'm going to ask if there, I've got two t-shirts as giveaways, are there two people that think by looking at the map, you could remember what Jesus expects of his church? We're going to start in Patmos, so here's your, here's your gimme. In the Patmos, Jesus says the church is called to the wilderness. We start there. Jesus needs to gloriously deconstruct us so that he can remake us in his image. So, any takers, two volunteers, free t-shirts. Yes, you've got to come on the stage. Anybody think they can do it? Go around the map. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Come on. Come on. Two people. You're guessing. Nobody? I am a bad teacher. Just take a get, take a stab at it. Seven out of eight, I'll still give you the t-shirt. Come on. Pressure's mounting. We can do it together, but then I'm not giving you a t-shirt. Oh, we got somebody's waving fingers. Come on. Connect groups. You guys have been walking through this every chapter, every week. All right, we're just going to have to do it all together then. Somebody wants to dive in, but once I get halfway through, you've lost your chance. All right, Patmos. We started there with John on the island of Patmos. We're called to the wilderness. Anybody remember Ephesus? Called to what? Called to love. Okay, see, a lot of you get this. Don't be embarrassed to come up here. It's worth a t-shirt, right? Maybe not. All right, second one, Smyrna. Called to what? Suffer. Lots of people remember that one. All right. Uh, Pergamum. Truth. Well done, Mick. All right. Well, you got Thyatira. That one was by video only, so that one might be a little bit harder, only if you were in the connect groups. Holiness. Holiness. Very good. All right. Sardis. This is the church that was dead. Jesus said, wake up. Authenticity. See, we've got people that could have got t-shirts this morning. All right. Philadelphia. Please tell me you know that one. What are all these doors for? Called to mission. That's right. Called to mission. Last one, Laodicea. Called to fervor last week. All right, fervor. That's it. That is what Jesus expects of his church. These churches were in a struggle. A war. The, the war of the Lamb. But as you look at the battle these churches were in, you find these believers were victorious, not by wielding swords, but by following Jesus in worship, and in faithful witness. These are the weapons of our warfare. You see, the church is a conquering force, but it is not militaristic. Early Christians were never fascinated with the power of the Roman military. They clung to the cross where evil is conquered, not by swords and spears, but by suffering and love. Jesus said to love him by obeying his commands, which includes loving your enemies, not killing them. Evil is fought not by military might, but with the message of Jesus, enduring persecution for a mightier plan. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he renounced the sword and turned away from the use of force. His peaceful method eventually conquered Rome and other barbarian kingdoms. The famous Roman sword and the fearsome barbarian axes and clubs were all laid at the feet of the Prince of Peace. The church's weapons of warfare are these, love, truth, holiness, authentic faith, and fervor. We defeat evil by rewarding those influenced by it. That's a challenging one. It's, it's in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. We bless those who persecute us, Romans 12. We turn the other cheek when slapped with insults, Matthew 5. The world is changed through sacrifice, dying to self, and giving of self to others, an imitation of Jesus' great sacrifice. This is how the church fights evil in the world. We overcome evil with good. Now, a person could ask, as you look at the book of Revelation, does it exalt martyrdom? Because it came out in several of the letters to the church in Pergamum. Here's what Jesus writes. I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. In Greek, witness is Martus, who was killed among you. 
So the Greek word in the New Testament, New Testament's written in Greek. What we translate as witness is the Greek word martis or martyr. Only later in church history did martyr refer to witnesses dying for their faith, that basically as they were a witness for Christ, sometimes that led to death. Revelation, though, it calls readers not to death, but to faithful discipleship and witness. So Revelation says, be my witness. That's really what he's saying, even if that may lead to death. The message to the church from the exalted Jesus is not a call to death, but to discipleship, including abstaining from everything that defiles. These messages reveal that faithful discipleship has costs and rewards. And the eternal reward far outweighs the temporary cost. So let me ask you, what does the Greek word martyr mean? How would we translate that? What's martyr? Come on, I just said it. Witness, all right. And are we supposed to be witnesses? Yes, not a trick question. Are we supposed to be witnesses? Yes, should we tell the story of Jesus? Absolutely. And I'm telling you, I'm setting you up, by the way. So what you're telling me is the job of the church is to make martyrs, to make witnesses. Do on that for a little while. Maybe a play on words, but it's still true. And you may have never thought of it that way, but there are Christians all over the world where people have been witnesses and it has cost them much. It's easy to take your faith for granted and I pray we never do. May we be committed to being the church Jesus desires, loving others well, embracing suffering, walking in truth, holy, living authentically on mission for him while maintaining a fervent faith. Let's truly take this church back to Jesus, the cornerstone, so that we can engage our world with his transforming message. That's the goal. So this is the last week on the series, and we're going to look at what matters or what it means to engage our world with the story of Jesus, to be his witnesses. So the church is called to be witnesses. It's called to engage our world. And so to do this, we're going to have to leave Turkey now. So we've been in Turkey for the majority of the series, and we're going to head to northern Israel, to the region of Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus first talks about the church with the disciples. So if you look at this map, Jerusalem is way south way down here in the region of Judea. You could head north to Galilee. Of course, that's where Jesus spent most of his years of ministry. And you head way north, and you can see Caesarea Philippi way up there. So that's where we're headed. So we're going to that part of the world. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, we want to be people of the Word. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there are Bibles underneath your seat. You're welcome to use that and take it home if you don't have one at home as a gift from the church. And I'm also going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. We don't worship the Word, but we do revere it. We hold it in authority and are thankful that God has given it to us for daily instruction in life. We're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus first talks about the church. Matthew 16, verses 13 to 19. In the conversation that Jesus has with his disciples, it's very important for our church today. So we're in Matthew 16, verses 13 to 19. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea, Philippia, he asked his disciples, who the people said that the son of the man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah, and others say the prophet. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Bless you too, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and the blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in the heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and is this the rock I will build my church, and the gates of the hill shall not prevail against it. I will give you the key of the the kingdom of heaven, and Whatever you bound on the earth shall be bound on the heaven, and whatever you lose in the earth shall be loosed in the heaven. And I'm going to share in Spanish for you can. 
enjoyed the Spanish too. La confesión de Pedro. Cuando llegó a la región de Cesarea de Filipo, Jesús le preguntó a sus discípulos, ¿Quién dice la gente que es el hijo del hombre? Le respondieron, unos dicen que es Juan el Bautista, otros Elías y otros Jeremías, o unos de los profetas. Y ustedes, ¿quién dicen que soy yo? Tú eres Cristo, el hijo del viviente, afirmó San Pedro. Dichoso tú, Simón, hijo de Jona. Le dijo Jesús, porque eso no te lo reveló ningún mortal, sino mi Padre que está en el cielo. Yo te digo que tú eres Pedro. Y sobre esta piedra edificaré mi iglesia. Las puertas del reino de la muerte no prevalecerán contra ella. Te daré las llaves del reino, la de los cielos. Todo lo que ates en la tierra quedará atado en el cielo. Y todo lo que desates en la tierra quedará desatado en el cielo. Amen. Amen. These are the very words of God. Thank you. you Maybe see you this morning. So Jesus has traveled with his disciples 30 miles north. So I have, uh, of course, given you the understanding. You need to understand the, the scripture in its context with the verses before and the verses after. So in the verses right before this passage, he's ministering in Galilee. He travels 30 miles north to Caesarea Philippi. And in this region is an ancient Roman city at the southwestern base of Mount Hermon. Um, Mom and Dad, would you mind to stand for a minute? My parents are here with me today. Always great to have family visits. So they were regular visitors of our time in Jerusalem, so they would come out pretty much annually. And so Dad and I got to go hiking lots of places, some I didn't really know about, so we went on treacherous locations. Um, but I think he's forgiven me since. But one of those spots is going to this region of Caesarea Philippi to go and, and you can go visit the city and the rocky hillside where the, Jesus spoke with his disciples in this passage of Scripture. And in this district, there was this rocky hillside filled with shrines dedicated to false gods, the primary temple being to the god Pan. And next to the shrines is a large cave where a powerful stream once flowed. And the temple to Pan stood over the entrance. So as you look at these pictures, This is Caesarea Philippi. You can see that large cave and that little nook basically are these shrines for the different gods. And the picture on the bottom right is a rendering of what they think that area looked like at the time of Jesus. So these temples sat right over that region. The temple of Pan, as it stood over this cave entrance, what the worshipers of Pan would do is they would perform human sacrifices in the cave and cast the remains into a natural abyss near the back. A victim disappearing in the water, it became a sign that the sacrifice was accepted. But if blood appeared in the nearby springs, the sacrifice was considered rejected. So it's in this region, this very dark region, that Jesus tells Peter that his declaration would be the foundation for advancing the kingdom of God. On this rock, I will build my church. Rocks provide a firm foundation for buildings. We, we know this. Joseph, the father of Jesus, was a builder, both a carpenter and a mason. Stones are the primary building material in the land of Israel. They're everywhere. It's the land of rocks. But the question is, Jesus will build his church upon what rock? Isaiah 51, you know, Jesus so often, he, he quotes from Isaiah. And I think this is part of what he's doing here. Isaiah 51, it sheds some light on the subject. Here's what that passage says. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, You who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. A New Testament corollary in 1 Peter, it says this, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. The church is built from the 4,000-year-old quarry of Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Joseph, Deborah, David, Solomon, Isaiah, Mary and Joseph, Peter, John, Paul, and a great cloud of faithful witnesses. Paul declares in Ephesians 2, here's what it says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. 
In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. A very important part of engaging our world is an understanding of who you are. You, as a child of God, have been carved out of a 4,000-year-old quarry. Upon this rock refers to the cornerstone Jesus and a vast quarry of saints dedicated to the purposes of God. You represent an important stone, a living stone in the church today. Isn't it incredible we have that inheritance, that history? We're carved out of that same quarry. Is that not incredible? Jesus is the cornerstone upon which the New Testament church is built with current members forming a structure to house the Spirit of God, a holy and awesome privilege and responsibility. Well, after speaking about building his church, Jesus refers to the gates of hell, a metaphor for death and a striking contrast to the living God. In the place where false deities required, required human sacrifice, Jesus is the living God because God brings life not death. Jesus promises, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, life to the full. So the church wages war against lesser gods, destructive gods like Pan, Zeus, and the imperial cult. False gods focus on self, materialism, pride, fame, sex, and power, and they all bring death. The message of the church is greater, and the gates of hell the gates of the enemy, Satan, will not prevail against God's advancing kingdom. You know, the, the phrase, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, it does not suggest we hide in an impenetrable fortress. That's not the purpose of the church. Jesus is not saying the devil is the aggressor and that we are the defender. What he is saying is we as the church are the aggressors and the devil is not safe from us. You need to understand that scripture in its context. The church charges on the offensive instead of hiding in foxholes, praying the shelling will stop. We're an advancing kingdom, assaulting the very gates of hell. This is why it's vital you know who you are so you can engage in what God wants you to do. If you don't have that identity from that rock from which you were hewn, it's pretty hard to step out and say, I'm going to charge against the enemy. Now you could ask, how do we advance against the gates of hell? We charge them with love, with justice, and with peace. We charge them by becoming world changers. You know, we've had these shirts and talked about what it means to be a world changer, and somebody made the comment, that's such strong language for me. I just don't think I'm a world changer. That person doesn't know who they are. Your identity is in Christ. You are all have the potential of being a world changer but you have to step into that life and say, I'm going to fulfill what it means to be that. I'm going to abide daily. I'm going to spend time with Jesus in his word. I'm going to pray. I'm going to live the word by loving God and, and loving others with no exceptions. There should be nobody you walk past that you don't feel the love of Christ for. I'm going to share his story with others. I'm going to give generously. I'm going to serve others. As you fulfill those five things, I don't know one person who is doing all five of those things that is not changing the world around them. So I'm telling you, if you fulfill that, you change the world. But let's ask, are we advancing as the American church? Are we storming the gates of hell? Is the American church engaging our culture with the message of Jesus? By my estimation, and that of many others, it seems the answer to those questions is, not really. We seem adrift. And I think the church is adrift because it is following culture, which is drifting, in case you haven't seen that. Instead of leading culture, we're following it. Instead of being the head, we're serving as the tail. Instead of driving culture, we're drifting right along with it. And as our culture shifts, there's four distinct responses that you can see. In fact, Choco de Jesus, he summarizes his responses in his book, Stay the Course, and I think he summarizes it well, so I'm going to share those four. The first is this. We are called to engage the world with the message of Jesus, but some people accommodate change. For these people, tolerance is the highest value. They don't want anyone to be superior to anyone else, so they accept every lifestyle and belief as equally valid. 
Accommodators think it's not right to judge anyone. They try to stay in step with the culture. They think we need to go along so that we can get along. And while some people accommodate, there's others who oppose it. So we're called to engage the world with the message of Jesus, but some people fiercely oppose change. So the second group, they have the opposite reaction. When threatened by change, they see proponents of the other side as enemies who must be defeated. And this is why I emphasize we're not fighting against people. They don't see those individuals as reasonable people who have a different opinion. Even small shifts in society are seen as potential major losses because if you give an inch, they're going to take a mile. These people oppose change because they're terrified that their way of life is going to be taken away, or worse, that it has already been stolen from them. They only listen to friends or commentators who reinforce their fears and inflame their anger. Those who might offer an alternate voice of reason are considered fools and pawns of the opposition. So there are those who accommodate, and there are those who oppose, but we also have those who withdraw to protect themselves. So we're called to engage the world with the message of Jesus, but some people withdraw to protect themselves. This group assumes, what's the use? My voice means nothing in the big debates about immigration, gun control, racial conflicts, or so-called same-sex marriage. Those issues are too complex, and anyway, I don't want to get in the line of fire between people who are so angry. If someone corners them and demands a stated opinion, they shake their heads and say, I don't know, it's beyond me. They believe not having an opinion protects them from getting caught in the fight between opposing forces. And many of them don't watch the news because they've concluded it's simply too depressing. These three reactions to cultural drift may seem completely good and right, but they undermine our identity as strong, compassionate, wise children of our heavenly King. For instance, those who accommodate change, they lose the sharp edge of truth. When tolerance is overvalued, behaviors that were called sin or evil a generation ago, they become acceptable topics in our sitcoms today. Those who oppose change can lose their sense of grace, love, and mercy for those who disagree with them. And those who withdraw too quickly from intense debates and dialogues, they lose their God-given opportunities to represent him in a lost and confused world. So we'll turn our attention to the fourth way to respond to the complexity and chaos of our modern culture, and it's this. We can engage our culture with a beautiful blend of truth, grace, and purpose. Jesus calls us to be in the world, but not of it, and to be salt and light to the people around us. With this identity and perspective, we interact with people with truth and grace not affirming their sins because we're afraid of being labeled judgmental. We don't harshly condemn them either. Jesus says, John writes in, in John three seventeen, Jesus came to save the world, not condemn it. So we shouldn't operate in that way either. And we don't withdraw from them because the interaction requires more than we care to give. Those aren't the right responses. Rather, in our engagement with people, we follow the example of Jesus. Again, taking the church back to Jesus that we can move forward and on with God. He moved toward the outcasts and the marginalized. He touched the lepers, cared for those who were possessed by demons. He wept with those who lost loved ones. He felt genuine sorrow when others chose a different path. He stood up against injustice, and he boldly faced the religious leaders who despised him for loving the unlovely. Jesus lived a simple, humble life, but he wasn't threatened by scarcity. He trusted his Father to provide for him in every way. Jesus wasn't consumed by power, prestige, and popularity, so he didn't dissolve into self-pity when those things were taken from him. He had a strong confidence in his Father and in his Father's will for him. Every day, you and I have choices about how we respond to our culture. And most times, it'd be much easier to avoid difficult conversations and just go along with the pressure to accept so-called same-sex marriage as the new normal, to Look the other way when violence destroys another life and another family. To give up on the fight against abortion. Choosing to engage requires a lot from us. But I've seen, though, that these unhelpful responses, accommodating, 
fiercely opposing and withdrawing. They isolate us, they diminish our impact, and they really do hurt God's reputation. I believe God wants me, that he wants you, to engage the demanding people and difficult issues in our culture. As we engage with wisdom, courage, and kindness, we need to set limits on what we're willing to accept. We need to look closely at how Jesus related to the helpless and the powerful, those who loved him and those who hated him. I think we could learn more from that. How did Jesus treat those who hated him? He tailored his response to each person, but always with the appropriate measures of gentleness and toughness. God calls me to engage like Jesus, to storm the gates of hell. He calls you to engage like him too. When we grasp our identity in Christ, we realize we belong to another king and a different kingdom. And because our hopes are in that kingdom, we aren't shattered or surprised when this earthly kingdom is shaken. That was the case for John and the early believers. You know, people have asked if I'm concerned about the upcoming presidential election, because it's interesting. Have you caught on to that? I can tell you, not at all. My king does not sit on a throne in a White House in Washington, D.C. My king sits on an eternal throne, surrounded by the praises of a heavenly host, singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What's to worry about? I don't fear the future. I keep my eyes fixed on Jesus, just as John. We started with John on the island of Patmos. He says, I'm on the island called Patmos, but I'm in the Spirit. He was in this difficult place. He was in prison. But he says, I'm going to worship the Lord. It didn't matter what his life circumstances were. He knew where his eyes needed to be fixed. And so should ours. Because I don't fear, I don't withdraw. We aren't remote or distant from the people around us. Our confidence gives us security so we can be fully engaged in knowing them, loving them, and representing our king to them. Most people, including many Christians, are putting their hopes in the earthly kingdom. That's kind of our default. They expect their elected officials to lead them to the promised land of security and prosperity, and they're shocked when political promises don't work out as they're expected. Maybe not so much anymore. Jesus is indeed a sovereign and powerful king, but his reign and his purposes are very different from what most of us expect. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, I love his observation. He says this, Jesus, he came just as it had been predicted. You can see this, it's as it's predicted, but not at all the way people expected. First century Jews, including the disciples, they had to expand their concept of God who became king. As we examine the responses of people to Jesus, we'd have to conclude he was a big disappointment for most of them. He didn't overthrow the Romans after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He rode on the back of a donkey's colt with palm branches spread in front of him, not on a white stallion with swords flashing and trumpets blaring. He confused many people then, and I think he still confuses a lot of people now. He simply doesn't do what we expect him to do. To engage our culture, we must remember who it is we're representing. We represent King Jesus. We must live with the realization every day and with every interaction and I'll tell you, I'll confess, sometimes I forget. And that's why you marry, because your spouse is sure to point it out. Remember who you're representing. Okay, here's my confession. I was checking out at a store in the mall. Since we've come back from overseas, you know, we were overseas for 10 years. And I come back, and every time I check out at a store, they want to know 10 pieces of information. Phone number, blood type, social security, mother's maiden name. You know, do I want to sign up for their perk card? Honestly, I just want to check out, man. I don't, I don't. And so Shelly says, you can't tell people that. And I said, anyways, all that to say, with every interaction, we've got to remember who we're representing. We really do. We've got to. And if you can't, shop from Amazon. Our king is still alive. He's compassionate and sovereign. This reality should give you peace when the world seems to be falling apart around you, and it lets you tap into the timeless wisdom of God when you're facing discouraging challenges. You're going to face challenges, and man, you need Jesus to remind you of who you are in those moments. 
When you see how Jesus bent down to care for the poor and forgotten people of his day, we should be filled with compassion for the helpless men and women in our community. When we look at how he stood up against abuse and oppression, we should feel his strength in our souls and speak out boldly to correct injustice today. That's why we're running this 5K race over Labor Day weekend, because we need to do something about the fight against human trafficking and sex slavery today. It's a huge issue today. So we're going to step out boldly in all of these things. Make no mistake, our world is changing. Our culture is drifting away from solid values. We live in a challenging age, but no more challenging than the first century Christians who we've been reading about. The ones who received the letters from Jesus telling them what he expects of his church. He expects these things of our church today. These early Christians trusted God for wisdom and courage to face economic loss and government opposition, and the church prospered because of their faith. To engage our culture, we need a clear identity and a compelling purpose. So what is our identity? We belong to the Creator, the King, the Savior of the world. God created the vast expanse of the universe. He is more powerful and majestic than anything we can imagine. We are a part of His family. This is my identity. This is your identity if you've made a decision to surrender your life to Jesus. So then what is our purpose? We expect God to give us perfect peace and prosperity, to right all wrongs and make our lives comfortable right now. Haven't been reading the Bible very carefully. Misplaced expectations inevitably lead to inadequate responses to life's difficulties. I want to say that again. This is really important misplaced expectations. We should not have the expectation that everything will be made right in this life. It's a false expectation. And that misplaced expectation will lead to an inadequate response to life's difficulties. If, however, our purpose is to represent the King of glory all day, every day, we won't be surprised when He calls us to be kind instead of angry, to be bold instead of weak, to die to our selfish desires so that the life of Jesus can shine through us. We live between the already and not yet of God's promises. He's given us precious and magnificent promises of forgiveness, the Spirit's presence and power, and a clear sense of purpose in this life, but the complete fulfillment of all God's promises won't come until the new heaven and the new earth. When that day arrives, all wrongs will be made right, all evil left behind, all hurts healed, all errors corrected, and the family of God will finally be united in His loving presence and under His loving rule. That day isn't today. For now, we must dive deep into our identity as God's dear children, following His law and basking in His love. That's what we did here this morning. Isn't it wonderful that we can come in, be filled up in His name to understand that He embraces us so we can be sent out for His purposes in the world? We must refine and pursue God's purpose to make us salt in a decaying world and light in a dark culture, not to expect lives of complete comfort and ease. It's what it means to belong to Him. Our task every day is to remember who God is and who we are. Shelley and I, we are committed to instilling a biblical and powerful identity in our kids. When I start dropping off our two oldest at school next month, Nate's going into fourth grade and Haley into first, I'll tell him, this is why I always drop them off. That's my job. I get to drop them off. Nate, remember who you are. Haley, remember who you are. Child of the King. You're going to represent God today. To everything you do. Everything you say. It's a simple statement, but it's a potential to shape the future. For my kids, sure, but for all of us. Youth, as you go back to school, remember who you are. Adults, when you go to your workplace, remember who you are. When you go on that business trip where nobody knows you, remember who you are. You represent God. You know, there are times when we engage the world that we may think our situations are completely hopeless. I know that when we get into the world, man, we face some difficult things sometimes. And consequently, we can feel totally helpless. But believers over the centuries show us that's never the case. No matter how depressing our situations, we can always fall back into the sovereign, wise, loving arms of Almighty God. 
you feel like American culture is shifting under your feet and you're powerless to stop it, you're not alone. Many people seem to see the same powerful undercurrents of history taking place in front of our eyes. Some people have drifted with the culture and need to remember who they are. If you've drifted, you've got to remember your identity and your purpose. Others are hanging on by their fingernails to God's will and ways. They need to remember that God will never leave them or forsake them. Yes, the culture is drifting, but God's presence, truth, grace, and power haven't changed at all. He's just as real, just as strong, just as loving as ever. As we hold fast to God and his purposes, we won't quietly accommodate the destructive currents of our culture. We won't react in anger to oppose people who disagree with us, and we won't withdraw out of hopelessness and despair. Instead, we'll trust in the matchless love, wisdom, and strength of God to engage the people and causes around us, and we'll shine in the darkness. This is what it means to be a part of the resistance. first talks about the church in Matthew chapter 16. He and his disciples had been ministering in Galilee, and they traveled 20 miles north to the district of Caesarea Philippi in this area. Matthew records, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Behind me is a rocky hillside with shrines dedicated to the false gods of Pan, Echo, and Hermes. Next to these shrines is a large cave where a powerful stream once flowed. The worshippers of Pan would perform human sacrifices in the cave and cast the remains into the natural abyss near the back. The Pan worshippers considered this abyss to be the entrance to Hades or the gates of hell. The victims disappearing into the water were a sign that the sacrifice was accepted. If blood appeared in the nearby springs, then the sacrifice was considered rejected. So it's in this place that Jesus refers to Peter and tells him that upon his declaration, it would be the foundation for advancing the kingdom of God. In this place, Jesus tells Peter that his declaration would be the foundation for advancing the kingdom of God. Jesus gives Peter a surname like the renaming of Abram to Abraham or Jacob to Israel. He refers to him as Petros, representing the Aramaic Kepha, meaning stone or rock. Rocks provide a firm foundation for building. The church would be built upon Peter's declaration, forever firm and secure. Jesus, after talking about building his church, refers to the gates of hell, a metaphor for death. In a place where false deities required human sacrifice, Jesus is the Son of the living God, because God brings life, not death. Jesus promises in John 10.10, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. The church is to overcome lesser gods, destructive gods like Pan, Echo, and Hermes. False gods focus on self, materialism, pride, fame, sex, power, and they bring death. The message of the church is greater, and the gates of hell will not prevail against God's advancing kingdom. Now, this phrase, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, it does not mean, it does not suggest that we should hide in a fortress, a building, that the devil cannot penetrate. 
Jesus is not saying that the devil is the aggressor and that we are safe from him. What he is saying is, we are the aggressors and the devil is not safe from us. We are an advancing kingdom assaulting the gates of hell. The church is called to conflict. But how do we advance the kingdom? We assault the gates of hell as inaugurated by God's reign of love, justice, and peace. It starts by taking every thought captive to Jesus and then it moves out from there. Where there's despair, we bring hope. Where there's unbelief, we bring faith. Where there's hatred, we bring love. Where there's bitterness, we offer forgiveness. Where there's sickness, we offer healing. Where there's disunity, we bring reconciliation. We, as the church, are to be walking, talking representatives of Jesus to the world. As we turn people to Jesus, we storm the gates of hell. As we dig water wells in Africa or pray for the nations, as we establish the church where it does not exist, we storm the gates of hell. By entering into conflict over the eternal destiny of people and fighting toward the common goal of making disciples, community is formed. The church creates community, it forms community by fighting alongside each other and advancing the kingdom of God. The cause of Christ creates genuine community. The harder the fight, the closer the community. A commitment to God's people in the church is required to advance the kingdom of God. We are called to community and we must fight for community. We are called to love and must fight for love. We are called out for a purpose and must fight with purpose. We're to fight for truth, holiness, authenticity, and fervor. Jesus on the island of Patmos had letters sent to the church. Jesus died for the church, is in the midst of the church. He loves the church and gave a task to her. The hope of the world is Jesus, the message of the church. Presently, there are over three billion people in the world today without the hope found in Jesus. Will you commit yourself to Christ, the church, and to storming the gates of hell until his eminent return? Will you join the resistance? Ephesus, the great mother of gods, Artemis reigned. Alongside her were lesser gods, Greek and Roman. Growing imperial worship, every city contained temples for various gods and religions. The seven churches to the seven letters to the churches concluded with to the one who conquers. The Christian church is a conquering force. The worship of Artemis, Diana, it had lasted 1,400 years, yet the strength of the message of Jesus, it destroyed this message, it destroyed this false deity within a few years of strategic spirit-led mission. Isn't that amazing? 1,400 years, this false god was worshipped, Jesus comes on the scene, the disciples comes on the scene, and everything changes. That deity, false deity, is dead. Great Pan is dead, Plutarch once wrote describing the lament of passengers sailing along the west coast of Greece. The god of shepherds and flocks had died, and the Christian faith had triumphed over paganism. When Constantine the Great adopted Christianity as a state religion, the pagan temples received a mortal blow. The images of Artemis were defaced, her statues were destroyed or buried, and her name erased from inscriptions. Pagan wall paintings were plastered over or scraped off. Statues were sent to kilns or crosses were carved on their foreheads. Churches were erected from the material of Roman monuments and pagan temples. James Kennedy, the founder of Evangelism Explosion, he made this observation. I love these numbers. He said, when Peter preached his first message, over 3,000 believed. Must have been a good message. Shortly thereafter, 5,000 were added followed by a great multitude of Jews and priests, and next came a period of persecution. So we've got thousands of believers, but when this period ended in A.D. 313 with the Edict of Toleration, 10 million professing Christians were alive. From thousands to millions, and I think in large part because their faith had to become real in persecution. By the year 1,000, the number had grown to 50 million. By the end of the 1700s, 215 million, an increase of 169 million in 800 years. And by 1900, the number had grown to 500 million. By 1990, the number was roughly 1.8 billion. David Barrett, I like these numbers better. It helps us see that the mission is coming to a close. He says that by 1430, 
one out of 99 people follow Jesus. By 1790, one out of 49. By 1960, one out of 24. By 1980, one out of 16. By 1993, one out of nine. And by 2010, one out of five people were following Jesus. The church is fulfilling its mission to make disciples. But to finish the task, every believer must tell the story of Jesus until all have heard. A very simple application of the message for you to be able to fulfill, to bring Jesus to your near neighbors and bring them to a place where they could come and engage and experience God. As you leave today, you're going to find small plastic bags with window decals and invitation cards. Some, this is the ground level entry point engaging in mission. Very non-confrontational. Put a yard sign in your yard. So when those Mormons come knocking as they do at my door, they already know who I am. And I get to pray with them and pray that Jesus shows himself to them. Uh, and they keep coming back. I think they want Jesus. The other thing you can do is grab a window decal. We have those on our cars. Shelly and I have the goal of passing out at least one invitation card a week. Shelly gave one to a Walmart clerk this last week. And last week we changed our phone numbers. So we gave one to our Verizon uh, guy there. You need to be in the practice of engaging your world with Jesus. And this is a simple way to do it. So I'm going to make it simple and we'll go to the complex later. But if you can start here, it's an easy way to start. Make a declaration in your neighborhood, in your car, in your workplace, that I am a follower of Christ. As you have questions, if you need prayer, I'm here for that. Simple way to do it. I'm going to invite you to stand this morning. We're going to close out in prayer. We have thousands outside these walls, I've shared that before, that need to be engaged with the message of Jesus. Every six to seven out of ten houses represent people, families, who are unchurched. They don't darken the door of a church on a Sunday. They need you to be a witness to them. They need for you to engage them with the story of Jesus. David Platt, he writes in Radical, if you and I want our lives to count for God's purpose in the world, we need to begin with a commitment to God's people in the church. God has called us to lock arms with one another and single-minded, death-defying obedience to one objective, the declaration of his gospel for the demonstration of his glory to all nations. So we're going to sing a symbol of our locking arms together for that single-minded decision of engaging our world with the message of Jesus. Let's sing.